Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. 
and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I've got a, uh, a snoozy, old-timey, British uh, satire story for you to fall asleep to tonight. But before we get to the bedtime reading, I would just like to profoundly thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com where you can pledge uh, $2 to listen to a totally ad-free version of the show. So, this week's patrons, Sherry Alcoin, M. Green, Alvar Vistad, Loretta Richardson, Joxie Callinger, Natalie Sin, and Travis Noggle. Thank you all so, so much. I really, really appreciate you supporting this show um, and being a part of making it. Thank you. And for anyone who doesn't know, all of these names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a wonderful site where you can directly support the people who make the things that you like. So if you like the Sleepy podcast and... Uh, Maybe it's become part of your nightly routine. How do you get a better night's sleep? Then consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. Like I said earlier, uh, $2 a month gets you access to a totally ad-free version of the show, which releases every Sunday like normal. And uh, $5 a month gets you access to our exclusive poetry feed with over 50 episodes that are totally separate from the normal podcast where I read poetry. But no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So, again, if you want to be a part of making this show too, go to patreon.com slash radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lebkowski, and the cover of for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, tonight, I have a story from the author of a recent episode um, where it was a long-form satirical poem, and uh, this story tonight is titled Erewhon or Over the Ranges, by Samuel Butler. I really like uh, Samuel Butler's writing. It feels like it's written to be read aloud. And uh, he's a very good storyteller. And this is a satire about a kind of utopic place that turns out to not be as utopic as you might think. And also because it was written in the late 1800s by a British guy. <laughs> the story did not age super well, at least not past chapter one. Um, so, uh, tonight you're going to be hearing the first chapter of this story, read once, real slow and rhythmic and snoozy. And then it will repeat itself so you can stay deep, deep asleep. So tonight, without further ado, Erewhon, 
by Samuel Butler. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. Chapter 1 Wastelands If the reader will excuse me, I will say nothing of my antecedents, nor of the circumstances which led me to leave my native country. The narrative would be tedious to him and painful to myself. Suffice it that when I left my home it was with the intention of going to some new colony and either finding or even perhaps purchasing waste crown land suitable for cattle or sheep farming, by which I thought that I could better my fortunes more rapidly than in England. It will be seen that I did not succeed in my design, and that however much I may have met with that was new and strange, I have been unable to reap any pecuniary advantage. It is true, I imagine myself to have made a discovery which, if I can be the first to profit by it, will bring me a recompense beyond all money computation and secure me a position such as has not been attained by more than some fifteen or sixteen persons since the creation of the universe. But to this end, I must possess myself of a considerable sum of money. Neither do I know how to get it, except by interesting the public in my story and inducing the charitable to come forward and assist me. With this hope, I now publish my adventures, but I do so with great reluctance, for I fear that my story will be doubted unless I tell the whole of it, and yet I dare not do so lest others with more means than mine should get the start of me. I prefer the risk of being doubted to that of being anticipated, and have therefore concealed my destination on leaving England, as also the point from which I began my more serious and difficult journey. My chief consolation lies in the fact that truth bears its own impress, and that my story will carry conviction by reason of the internal evidences for its accuracy. No one who is himself honest will doubt my being so. I reached my destination in one of the last months of 1868, but I dare not mention the season, lest the reader should gather in which hemisphere I was. The colony was one which had not been opened up, even to the most adventurous settlers, for more than eight or nine years, having been previously uninhabited, save by a few tribes who frequented the seaboard. The part known to Europeans consisted of a coastline about 800 miles in length, 
affording three or four good harbors, an attractive country extending inland for a space varying from two or three hundred miles until it reached the offshoots of an exceedingly lofty range of mountains which could be seen from far out upon the plains and were covered with perpetual snow. The coast was perfectly well known, both north and south of the track to which I have alluded, but in neither direction was there a single harbor for 500 miles, and the mountains, which descended almost into the sea, were covered with thick timber, so that none would think of settling. With this bay of land, however, the case was different. The harbors were sufficient, the country was timbered, but not too heavily, and was admirably suited for agriculture. It also contained millions on millions of acres of the most beautifully grass country in the world, and of the best suited for all manner of sheep and cattle. The climate was temperate and very healthy. There were no wild animals, nor were the inhabitants dangerous being few in number, and of an intelligent, tractable disposition. It may be readily understood that when once Europeans set foot upon this territory, they were not slow to take advantage of its capabilities. Sheep and cattle were introduced, and bred with extreme rapidity. Men took up their 50,000 or 100,000 acres of country, going inland, one behind the other, till in a few years there was not an acre between the sea and the front ranges which was not taken up, and stations either for sheep or cattle were spotted about at intervals of some 20 or 30 miles over the whole country. The front ranges stopped the tide of squatters for some little time, it was thought that there was too much snow upon them for too many months in the year, that the sheep would get lost, the ground being too difficult for shepherding, that the expanse of getting wool down to the ship's side would eat up the farmer's profits, and that the grass was too rough and sour for sheep to thrive upon. But one after another, determined to try the experiment, and it was wonderful how successfully it turned out. Men pushed farther and farther into the mountains and found a very considerable tract inside the front range, between it and another which was loftier still, though even this was not the highest, the great snowy one which could be seen from out upon the plains. The second range, however, seemed to mark the extreme limits of pastoral country, and it was here at a small, newly founded station that I was received as a cadet and soon regularly employed. I was then just 22 years old. I was delighted with the country and the manner of life. It was my daily business to go up to the top of a certain high mountain and down one of its spurs under the flat in order to make sure that no sheep had crossed their boundaries. I was to see the sheep, not necessarily close at hand, nor to get them in a single mob, 
but to see enough of them here and there to feel easy that nothing had gone wrong. This was no difficult matter, for there were not above 800 of them, and, being all breeding ewes, they were pretty quiet. There were a good many sheep which I knew, as two or three black ewes, and a black lamb or two, and several others which had some distinguishing mark whereby I could tell them. I would try and see all these, and if they were all there, and the mob looked large enough, I might rest assured that all was well. It is surprising how soon the eye becomes accustomed to missing twenty sheep out of two or three hundred. I had a telescope and a dog, and would take bread and meat and tobacco with me. Starting with early dawn, it would be night before I could complete my round, for the mountain over which I had to go was very high. In winter, it was covered with snow, and the sheep needed no watching from above. If I were to see sheep dung or tracks going down on the other side of the mountain, where there was a valley with a stream, a mere cul-de-sac, I was to follow them and look out for sheep. But I never saw any, the sheep always descending onto their own side, partly from habit and partly because there was abundance of good, sweet feed, which had been burnt in the early spring just before I came. It was now deliciously green and rich, while that on the other side had never been burnt and was rank and coarse. It was a monotonous life, but it was very healthy, and one does not much mind anything when one is well. The country was the grandest that can be imagined. How often have I sat on the mountainside and watched the waving downs? with the two white specks of huts in the distance and the little square of garden behind them, the paddock with a patch of bright green oats above the huts and yards of wool sheds down on the flat below, all seen as through the wrong end of a telescope, so clear and brilliant was the air, or as upon a colossal model or map spread out beneath me. Beyond the downs was a plain, going down to a river of great size, on the farther side of which there were other high mountains, with the winter's snow still not quite melted. Up the river, which ran winding in many streams over a bed some two miles broad, I looked upon the second great chain, and could see a narrow gorge where the river retired and was lost. I knew that there was a range still farther back, but except from one place near the very top of my own mountain, no part of it was visible. From this point, however, I saw whenever there were no clouds, a single snow-clad peak many miles away, and I should think about as high as any mountain in the world. Never shall I forget the utter loneliness of the prospect, 
only the little faraway homestead giving sign of human handiwork, the vastness of mountain and plain, of river and sky, the marvelous atmospheric effects, sometimes black mountains against a white sky, and then again, after cold weather, white mountains against a black sky, sometimes seen through breaks and swirls of cloud, and sometimes, which was best of all, I went on my mountain in afar, and then got above the mist, going higher and higher. I looked down upon a sea of whiteness, through which would thrust innumerable mountain tops that looked like islands. I am there now, as I write. I fancy that I can see the downs, the huts, the plain, and the riverbed that torrent pathway of desolation with its distant roar of waters. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So lonely and so solemn with the sad gray clouds above and no sound save a lost lamb bleeding upon the mountainside as though its little heart were breaking. Then there comes some lean and withered old ewe with deep gruff voice and unlovely aspect, trotting back from the seductive pasture. Now she examines this gully, and now that, and now she stands listening with uplifted head, that she may hear the distant wailing and obey it. Aha, they see, and rush towards each other. Alas, they are both mistaken. The ewe is not the lamb's ewe. They are neither kin nor kind to one another and part in coldness. Each must cry louder and wander farther yet. May luck be with them both that they may find their own by nightfall. But this is mere dreaming and I must proceed. I could not help speculating upon what might lie farther up the river and behind the second range. I had no money, but if I could only find workable country, I might stock it with borrowed capital and consider myself a made man. True, the range looked so vast that there seemed little chance of getting a sufficient road through it or over it but no one had yet explored it, and it is wonderful how one finds that one can make a path into all sorts of places, and even get a road for pack horses, which from a distance appear inaccessible. The river was so great that it must drain an inner track, at least I thought so, and though everyone said it would be madness to attempt taking sheep farther inland, I knew that only three years ago the same cry had been raised against the country which my master's flock was now overrunning. I could not keep these thoughts out of my head as I would rest myself upon the mountainside. They haunted me as I went to my daily rounds and grew upon me from hour to hour till I resolved that after shearing I should remain in doubt no longer but saddle my horse take as much provision with me as I could, and go and see for myself.
but over and above these thoughts came that of the great range itself. What was beyond it? Ah, who could say? There was no one in the whole world who had the smallest idea, save those who were themselves on the other side of it, if, indeed, there was anyone at all. Could I hope to cross it? This would be the highest triumph that I could wish for, but it was too much to think of yet. I would try the nearer range and see how far I could go. Even if I did not find country, might I not find gold or diamonds or copper or silver? I would sometimes lie flat down to drink out of a stream and could see little yellow specks among the sand. Were these gold? People said no, but then people always said there was no gold until it was found to be abundant. There was plenty of slate and granite, which I had always understood to accompany gold, and even though it was not found in paying quantities here, it might be abundant in the main ranges. These thoughts filled my head, and I could not banish them. Chapter 1 Wastelands If the reader will excuse me, I will say nothing of my antecedents, nor of the circumstances which led me to leave my native country. The narrative would be tedious to him and painful to myself. Suffice it that when I left my home it was with the intention of going to some new colony and either finding or even perhaps purchasing waste crown land suitable for cattle or sheep farming, by which I thought that I could better my fortunes more rapidly than in England. It will be seen that I did not succeed in my design, and that however much I may have met with that was new and strange, I have been unable to reap any pecuniary advantage. It is true. I imagine myself to have made a discovery which, if I can be the first to profit by it, will bring me a recompense beyond all money computation and secure me a position such as has not been attained by more than some 15 or 16 persons since the creation of the universe. But to this end, I must possess myself of a considerable sum of money. Neither do I know how to get it, except by interesting the public in my story and inducing the charitable to come forward and assist me. With this hope, I now publish my adventures, but I do so with great reluctance, for I fear that my story will be doubted unless I tell the whole of it, and yet I dare not do so lest others with more means than mine should get the start of me. I prefer the risk of being doubted to that of being anticipated, and have therefore concealed my destination on leaving England, as also the point from which I began my more serious and difficult journey. 
My chief consolation lies in the fact that truth bears its own impress and that my story will carry conviction by reason of the internal evidences for its accuracy. No one who is himself honest will doubt my being so. I reached my destination in one of the last months of 1868, but I dare not mention the season, lest the reader should gather in which hemisphere I was. The colony was one which had not been opened up, even to the most adventurous settlers, for more than eight or nine years, having been previously uninhabited, save by a few tribes who frequented the seaboard. The part known to Europeans consisted of a coastline about 800 miles in length, affording three or four good harbors, an attractive country extending inland for a space varying from two or three hundred miles until it reached the offshoots of an exceedingly lofty range of mountains which could be seen from far out upon the plains and were covered with perpetual snow. The coast was perfectly well known, both north and south of the track to which I have alluded, but in neither direction was there a single harbor for 500 miles, and the mountains, which descended almost into the sea, were covered with thick timber, so that none would think of settling. With this bay of land, however, the case was different. The harbors were sufficient, the country was timbered, but not too heavily, and was admirably suited for agriculture. It also contained millions on millions of acres of the most beautifully grass country in the world, and of the best suited for all manner of sheep and cattle. The climate was temperate and very healthy. There were no wild animals, nor were the inhabitants dangerous being few in number and of an intelligent, tractable disposition. It may be readily understood that when once Europeans set foot upon this territory, they were not slow to take advantage of its capabilities. Sheep and cattle were introduced and bred with extreme rapidity. Men took up their 50,000 or 100,000 acres of country, going inland, one behind the other, till in a few years there was not an acre between the sea and the front ranges which was not taken up, and stations either for sheep or cattle were spotted about at intervals of some 20 or 30 miles over the whole country. The front ranges stopped the tide of squatters for some little time, it was thought that there was too much snow upon them for too many months in the year, that the sheep would get lost, the ground being too difficult for shepherding, that the expanse of getting wool down to the ship's side would eat up the farmer's profits, and that the grass was too rough and sour for sheep to thrive upon. But one after another, determined to try the experiment, and it was wonderful how successfully it turned out. Men pushed farther and farther into the mountains and found a very considerable tract inside the front range, between it and another which was loftier still, though even this was not the highest, 
the great snowy one which could be seen from out upon the plains. The second range, however, seemed to mark the extreme limits of pastoral country, and it was here, at a small and newly founded station, that I was received as a cadet and soon regularly employed. I was then just 22 years old. I was delighted with the country and the manner of life. It was my daily business to go up to the top of a certain high mountain and down one of its spurs under the flat in order to make sure that no sheep had crossed their boundaries. I was to see the sheep, not necessarily close at hand, nor to get them in a single mob, but to see enough of them here and there to feel easy that nothing had gone wrong. This was no difficult matter, for there were not above 800 of them, and, being all breeding ewes, they were pretty quiet. There were a good many sheep which I knew, as two or three black ewes, and a black lamb or two, and several others which had some distinguishing mark whereby I could tell them. I would try and see all these, and if they were all there, and the mob looked large enough, I might rest assured that all was well. It is surprising how soon the eye becomes accustomed to missing twenty sheep out of two or three hundred. I had a telescope and a dog, and would take bread and meat and tobacco with me. Starting with early dawn, it would be night before I could complete my round, for the mountain over which I had to go was very high. In winter, it was covered with snow, and the sheep needed no watching from above. If I were to see sheep dung or tracks going down on the other side of the mountain, where there was a valley with a stream, the mere cul-de-sac, I was to follow them and look out for sheep. But I never saw any, the sheep always descending onto their own side, partly from habit and partly because there was abundance of good, sweet feed, which had been burnt in the early spring just before I came and was now deliciously green and rich, while that on the other side had never been burnt, and was rank and coarse. It was a monotonous life, but it was very healthy, and one does not much mind anything when one is well. The country was the grandest that can be imagined. How often have I sat on the mountainside and watched the waving downs, with the two white specks of huts in the distance and the little square of garden behind them, the paddock with a patch of bright green oats above the huts and yards of wool sheds down on the flat below. All seen as through the wrong end of a telescope, so clear and brilliant was the air, or as upon a colossal model or map spread out beneath me. Beyond the downs was a plain, going down to a river of great size, on the farther side of which there were other high mountains, with the winter snow still not quite melted, 
up the river, which ran winding in many streams over a bed some two miles broad. I looked upon the second great chain and could see a narrow gorge where the river retired and was lost. I knew that there was a range still farther back, but except from one place near the very top of my own mountain, no part of it was visible. From this point, however, I saw whenever there were no clouds a single snow-clad peak many miles away, and I should think about as high as any mountain in the world. Never shall I forget the utter loneliness of the prospect, only the little faraway homestead giving sign of human handiwork, the vastness of mountain and plain, of river and sky, the marvelous atmospheric effects, sometimes black mountains against a white sky, and then again, after cold weather, white mountains against a black sky, sometimes seen through breaks and swirls of cloud, and sometimes, which was best of all, I went on my mountain in a fog, and then got above the mist, going higher and higher. I would look down upon a sea of whiteness, through which would thrust innumerable mountaintops that looked like islands. I am there now, as I write. I fancy that I can see the downs, the huts, the plain, and the riverbed, that torrent pathway of desolation with its distant roar of waters. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So lonely and so solemn, with the sad gray clouds above, and no sound save a lost lamb bleeding upon the mountainside, as though its little heart were breaking. Then there comes some lean and withered old ewe, with deep gruff voice and unlovely aspect, trotting back from the seductive pasture. Now she examines this gully, and now that, and now she stands listening with uplifted head, that she may hear the distant wailing and obey it. Aha, they see, and rush towards each other. Alas, they are both mistaken. The ewe is not the lamb's ewe. They are neither kin nor kind to one another, and part in coldness. Each must cry louder and wander farther yet. May luck be with them both that they may find their own by nightfall. But this is mere dreaming, and I must proceed. I could not help speculating upon what might lie farther up the river and behind the second range. I had no money, but if I could only find workable country, I might stock it with borrowed capital and consider myself a made man. True, the range looked so vast that there seemed little chance of getting a sufficient road through it or over it, but no one had yet explored it, and it is wonderful how one finds that one can make a path into all sorts of places and even get a road for pack horses which from a distance appear inaccessible. 
The river was so great that it must drain an inner track. At least I thought so. And though everyone said it would be madness to attempt taking sheep farther inland, I knew that only three years ago the same cry had been raised against the country which my master's flock was now overrunning. I could not keep these thoughts out of my head as I would rest myself upon the mountainside. They haunted me as I went to my daily rounds and grew upon me from hour to hour till I resolved that after shearing I should remain in doubt no longer, but saddle my horse, take as much provision with me as I could, and go and see for myself. But over and above these thoughts came that of the great range itself. What was beyond it? Ah, who could say? There was no one in the whole world who had the smallest idea, save those who were themselves on the other side of it, if, indeed, there was anyone at all. Could I hope to cross it? This would be the highest triumph that I could wish for, but it was too much to think of yet. I would try the nearer range and see how far I could go. Even if I did not find country, might I not find gold or diamonds or copper or silver? I would sometimes lie flat down to drink out of a stream and could see little yellow specks among the sand. Were these gold? People said no, but then people always said there was no gold until it was found to be abundant. There was plenty of slate and granite, which I had always understood to accompany gold, and even though it was not found in paying quantities here, it might be abundant in the main ranges. These thoughts filled my head, and I could not banish them. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.